Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced at the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country in Fitzroy, Victoria. And broadcast to stolen lands right across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. Until we start to understand that climate change is also a political problem that's a function of power distribution, we may end up carrying the social divisions that exist in the present into our new utopian designed, um, you know, uh, engineered future. And that's a problem I think we ought to seek to avoid. Can we simply innovate our way out of the present climate crisis? Or do techno fixes hide another problem, that of a deeply unequal, an unjust world. Lawyer and writer Lizzie O'Shea argues that if we're going to have a just and democratic world, we need to wrestle the future of technology away from the billionaires and tech bros and into the hands of the people. Her new book is titled Future Histories, what Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine and the Paris Commune teach us about digital technology. I started by asking Lizzie about the dangers of techno-utopianism. Often uh, when environmentalists talk about solutions to human-caused climate change, it's really around technologies, so renewable energies, and how we need to transition from fossil fuels to renewable energies. And it often starts and ends there. And I think it's interesting that this type of uh, focus on technology mirrors in many ways uh, crude utopianisms that you look at in your new book, Future Histories. And I'm wondering whether we can start by talking about how this, uh, the dangers of this technological uh, utopianism. Yeah, I think it's a great question, a great idea. It's the right moment to be discussing some of these things. So Part of the motivation for this book is the idea that the technology, the, the, the digital revolution, and I don't use that term naively, I think that that's a term that we need to critique, but if we use it in the sense that you might use the term industrial revolution, that the digital revolution presents immense opportunities to transform a lot of the things that we do in our current society for the better. And that includes things like um, dealing with the enormous growing gap between rich and poor. It involves improving public participation so that the shortcomings of social democracy aren't so obvious to people. Um, And then it also includes ameliorating and um, managing some of the, the most profound problems facing us, which is obviously what we like to collectively call climate change. And so there's lots of different problems that come from that. And I think it's a really interesting observation talking about the idea that we can innovate out of climate change, that we can find technical solutions to what is, I think, ultimately a political problem. Uh, and my uh, my way of approaching that for the purposes of my book um, was by doing a little potted history, I suppose, of, of technological utopianism in the past and looking at where that those ideas became very popular in, um, in the past. And the period I look at is in the late 19th century, particularly in the, in the United States, where a bunch of writers were theorists rising about what would happen if we escalated the development of technology and how that would create these beautiful, wonderful societies, these utopias that uh, in which people were living, uh, you know, incredible lives and all the world's problems were solved. And of course, that's not 
quite what happened. And in fact, when you look at some of these utopias, you see uh, reflected back a lot of the political problems that existed in the present as well. So these utopians, what they often wrote about was um, lionising the engineer, seeing the engineer as someone who was uh, full of the ideas of the moment that were were worth listening to, Um, sometimes totally dispensing with democracy, that just having a a panel of people make decisions rather than relying on the um, inconstant and unreliable public, Um, as well as seeing that... um, Though I suppose that that then what happens is technology might escalate, but a lot of the social problems remain the same. So often they're a bit sexist, these utopias, or they had um, enforced rules that were quite didactic, idleness was punished and work was very important. Some of these ideas that might seem a bit reactionary in these utopias. And part of my argument really is that if you are undiscerning in your utopianism, you can often fail to see how problems of the present are politically generated. And unless we interrogate why they happen – we can carry them forth into the future, notwithstanding we might have accelerated the development of technology. And I think that comes to the fore in problems like climate change, where we see technological technological solutions being posed, which are often put forward by Western developed nations as a way of solving problems that they've also had a, a strong hand in creating. And the risks and the dangers of those um, p- those potential solutions are left to be borne by those who are powerless. And then unle- until we start to understand that climate change is also a political problem that's a function of power distribution, we may end up carrying the social divisions that exist in the present into our new utopian designed, um, you know, uh, engineered future. And that's a problem I think we ought to seek to avoid. And so you talk about some of these examples of utopia in literature Mm. that you looked at and uh, how they're often not very democratic. They were so technocratic and that really, we really uh, hear that in many ways in the ways that some people talk about solutions to climate change today. Mm. So there's two key things there is the rapid acceleration of technology and then a technocratic versus a democratic approach. So I was wondering if we could kind of tease those out there and maybe sort of underline that is, is the current capitalist mode of production. Yeah, so. I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, so... What's the solution that we pro- the the to the problems that we face today? I do I do think they're undeniably going to be technical. So we will need technological development, and we need you know investment in renewable energy. We need um, to look at um, ways of rehabilitating the environment. We need to look at transitioning how we create um, food, so the production of meat. All those things require technological development, and I think there's huge promise there. So part of it is not to let go of the imaginary of what might be possible, but it's also to think then well, what does that mean in social terms? How can we give people a say in the future and take people with us rather than imposing solutions upon them from above? And that's a critical question that I think particularly the climate movement comes needs to come to terms with, not least because um, across all facets in society these days, people are recognising the significance and the profound nature of the problems that we face. And not all the solutions will be the same. Uh, and one that comes to mind for me in recent times um, was Jeff Bezos was talking about why he invests in going into space. And you might have seen this, or some of your listeners might have seen this, he talks about how he wants to um, create a population that lives in space using unlimited energy, mined from asteroids, using the sun, and to sustain a population of a trillion humans. And so what he says is that could mean that we could have a thousand Mozarts and a thousand Einsteins. And people think that, well, you know, the CNN, where he's giving this interview, thinks this is a great 
potential future. And my problem is I, I just think about all the many billions of people who currently um, are left to squander in poverty uh, without access to education, without access to the basic necessities of life, let alone being able to contribute to culture or philosophy because they can't meet their basic needs. So my view is I think we need to think about solving that problem. Where does that problem come from? It comes from inequality. It comes from prioritising modes of profit rather than um, uh, sustainable development and and sharing of resources uh, to prioritise people's needs over profit. Um, And it comes from social democracies not working properly because they're not advocating for the many, they're advocating for the few. So I think until we can say we can build a sustainable society on earth that prioritises the empowerment and the flourishing of humans who live here, I think it's pretty ridiculous to then talk about uh, expanding our population into the trillions in space because my feeling is I don't really want to live in a society that's run by by Jeff Bezos who feels that that's an okay kind of bargain to draw, that the survival of humanity relies on an unequal society that's inefficient, that's unfair, that prioritises the needs of, of a very small section of society over the the majority and reproduce that in space, that sounds like a terrible idea. And so I partly think we want to be able to reclaim that it's possible to build a better society and that, you know, that might involve going to space. I'm I'm not against going to space, but I also think that involves some of the messy problems of politics, solving the problems of inequality, of of the shortcomings of social democracy, of, you know, all these kinds of issues that exist in the here and now so that we can have an actual sustainable society on earth and take that into space rather than uh, trying to escape those problems of politics by, by building a new society out in the atmosphere, beyond the atmosphere. So really in your book you are seeking to raise the question about, in a sense, who's who has the right to imagination for a future? Mm. And so we've talked about the example of Bezos and then there's also people like Musk, these billionaires um, who have one particular vision for the future, perhaps a scary, warped or dystopic one. So what's an alternative to that in terms of um, how could we be imagining a future other than that of the of the uh, you know, woke tech billionaires? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So what, the way I deal with it in my book is I look back at how this unfolded, this debate, and one of the things that I, I find um, is that the debate or the movement of technological utopians in the 19th century was happening alongside a defence of the Paris Commune. So some of your listeners might know about the Paris Commune, which took place place in the late 19th century. It was kind of an applied movement of democracy that took place in Paris over a short period of time. It was ultimately crushed. But they put forward a bunch of very radical ideas that I think are still radical by today's standards. So all sorts of participatory democracy, um, all sorts of uh, people methods of organising in your workplace across... um, There was a union of women. Um, People were involved in designing society... Um, in all sorts of different ways that I think is quite exciting. And there's lots of books that have been written about it. But mostly um, the the legacy of the commune was defended by socialists in the 19th century who who really were in a dialogue with the technological utopians. And the utopians really took from the Paris commune that that kind of bottom-up democracy doesn't work, that in fact the way to escape the Industrial Revolution, its its pitfalls was to accelerate technology, not to give people power to make their own um, kind of society and design their own society themselves. And so I think 
think let's look in if we're going to translate this this kind of discussion as it happened in the 19th century looks to the 21st century where might we look for those kinds of movements and I think there are places we can see it happening so people are organizing for example in uh, technology companies workers are organizing to hold their bosses to account and that might mean um, you know people I'm sure have heard about the Google walk-off where thousands of Google walkers workers left their desk and um, protesting about the treatment of sexual discrimination and harassment within the company now so that's a workplace issue but it's also translating into activism across um, more general social um, lines so for example protesting about Google's use of their technology in military settings um, Facebook's um, involvement in in fake news and polarising the electorate uh, and whether they could do things differently. And I think some of these places you can see how the ideas are being thrown up to design society differently but from below rather than from above. And, of course, there's more general social movements doing this as well all the time Um, and, and, you know, organised workers in their workplaces are doing it all the time as well, raising social policy questions as well as their own workplace issues. But these are the kinds of places I think we need to start looking, supporting those social movements for change rather than just looking to the next tech billionaire who's got a bright idea. It's really wonderful that you've raised these contemporary examples and, and, and telling that a lot of them are um, uh, examples of workplace struggles which are they're not necessarily a new way of taking action, are they? So the Google walk-off is a walk-off. Mm. So these are known strategies of organising and taking action I totally agree with you. So one thing that comes to mind is I'm a union delegate at my workplace and um, I'm I'm trying to work with the union to get our members to support the climate strike on the 20th of September. And many unions in Australia, I think, are starting to uh, become alive to these issues, mainly um, because I think it's quite obvious now how how these problems are so important and how we need to have a just transition as well into a new green economy that people shouldn't be left behind. But also because members are agitating and members like me, like others, I'm sure your listeners are union members, but they're also interested in climate issues and they're bringing that back to their workplace and taking um, it up to an institution that's probably still some of the largest institutions in society, unions. And so I'm really impressed by that initiative and I think that's only going to grow. And so that, you know, adults in their workplaces can start to support the children who've been going on strike themselves from their schools. And I I think it's really interesting that children have been the leaders and that the adults are kind of trailing behind. Um, But yeah, I think that we're going to see more and more of that, people um, bringing in climate issues into how they do their daily um, business, whether that's in their workplace or other kinds of civil activism that they're doing, that you can see how you can add a climate lens to that and and, uh, grow the ranks of the climate movement, um, diversify who gets to speak about these things and who is involved in them uh, and show how it's a human-centred problem that uh, involves the solutions will involve giving people a greater voice to be able to propose solutions rather than just assuming that our politicians will do it for us or that rich people will do it for us either, which I think both of those things are false um, hopes and that we're much better off investing in the infrastructure of social movements to be able to achieve real change. And in that sense, we could talk about technology in that way as well. So infrastructures of, of uh, social and workplace organising uh, technologies in the, in the perhaps soft sense, which maybe we can then bring into dialogue with this idea of technological determinism and technological utopianism, mm. thinking about sort of this uh, focus on technologies uh, such as renewable energy technologies and abatement technologies as the solutions to climate change and maybe bringing into dialogue other social 
technologies yeah. of, of organising. Absolutely. And one of the things I'm lucky enough to do with this book is I, I'll go and talk about it and I meet people who work in the technology space and heaps of them talk to me about wanting to do things or they're already doing things. And so, you know, you meet people who are setting up um, – you know, I met a guy the other day who's setting up a technology cooperative where he and other technologists get together and build um, technology for helping community organisations like renters' unions or climate activists um, organise, get people to meetings, keep them updated about their activities, um, solicit ideas and input. And I think that's a wonderful marriage of um, these ideas that technology will help us, but only if it's in the hands of the right people and being developed with those people in mind. And that's ultimately one of the arguments I make in my book, that if we're going to kind of overcome some of these problems we do need greater collaboration so it's it's on us to take technology questions seriously if you're not from the technology space already but it's also on technologists to deal um, with people who aren't familiar with that field uh, in a way that makes it accessible and that prioritizes their interests and doesn't see them as um, excluded from the debate because they haven't come from a technological background and in fact greater collaboration between those fields is the going to be the key ingredient in my view to a successful to proposing successful solutions to problems like climate change you're listening to earth matters environmental justice stories on the community radio network When we talk about technology, we often talk about the future, which makes it hard to figure out how to get there. In her new book, Future Histories, Lizzie O'Shea argues that we need to start looking backwards to look forwards. I want to sort of jump back a little bit in our discussion. In your book, you use the term a usable history, and so you make an argument that we need a usable history of technology What would a usable history of technology look like and how does that help us in our present? Yeah, I think it's a great idea and I think we need to use it more. So technology is often presented as not having a history almost, like these devices just come into our lives fully formed and they do all these things that are almost mysterious, that there's no social context to them uh, and they're just constantly taking over our social and our psychological spaces. And uh, my argument is that, um, well, in fact, these devices and, and the networked computer, for want of a better term, has its own little past that we can learn from. But also there's lots of other con- concepts and uh, social institutions that have their own past that we can learn from that help inform how we might discuss some of these things and about these phenomena, like how devices are invading our spaces, how we might be able to turn them to the force of social good, how we can limit their excesses and the things that make them bad, um, and how we can turn the digital revolution into something that is for the for, for people to enjoy uh, and feel empowered by rather than feel kind of harassed and oppressed by. And uh, that's really where I get to, so that, that we need to learn more about the history of computing itself. So I do talk a little bit about that, but that we also 
also might need to learn about, um, you know, the history of the modern police force as a way of understanding why the surveillance state is so large and powerful in the 21st century. Or that we might need to remember some of the lessons of the eight-hour day movement as a way of coming to terms with automation in the 21st century and how we can redistribute the benefits of automation rather than just let it be a tool for to make people rich. And then there's other kinds of ideas, I suppose, as well. Like one of the claims I put in there is looking at how government regulation of industries can actually serve very important purposes. So in in that sense, one of the history as part of the usable history that I look at is a history of regulating the automobile, which might not sound relevant, but automobiles were often treated as things that um, were not dangerous by design, but in fact, it was the individual driver's responsibility for any crash that might happen. And I think that's often how we think about algorithmic technology as well in the 21st century, that if it goes wrong, well, it's not the company that has designed it, it's not their fault. It's someone who's using it incorrectly or it's users they can't be trusted. And then, in fact, with regulation and thinking about how we might be able to centrally make up rules for how that industry could do things differently, we might make safer technology that is more inclusive, that takes into account other people's experiences beyond those who just build it, who tend to be white men who are quite wealthy. Um, And that's what happened in the automotive industry. So there's arguments that the introduction of seatbelts, the change of design, both internal and external to the car, since about the 70s and 60s in, in the 20th century, has actually saved millions and millions of lives in places like the United States. So let's think about how we might be able to institute reforms in the here and now that can improve our experience of technology, that can make it a more um, inclusive experience to use. And those are the kinds of ideas I'm, I'm trying to map out there. That there's In the past, we've done things, we've confronted problems like this, and we've found ways to solve them. Where do we look for those solutions? How can we learn from the past um, to then apply those lessons in the 21st century? And really what I'm saying as well, I suppose, is even if you don't have much knowledge or, or understanding of how technology works, If you understand how history works in relation to some of these ideas, you might be able to have a contribution to make uh, in terms of how we can improve the trajectory of digital technology so that it is more democratic, more accountable, uh, and it will produce a fairer society rather than one that's um, what we're currently seeing, which is framed around making money, um, around uh, not solving the problems that we're currently facing, but empowering certain sections of society, a very small cohort, um, rather than the many people people who seek to use it and want want a fairer society. Mm. I do actually think that we have the resources at our disposal to um, to deal with problems like climate change and we have such huge um, repositories of human ingenuity uh, to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, as an observer of the technology field, I see that all the time and I just think it, there's so much potential there that we could harness for the greater good. And so that's our job really as political activists and people who are critical thinkers about these topics is to find ways to make that happen. I don't think the future's lost at all. I'm really excited about it, but there's a lot of work to do, so um, we've all got to get involved. Lizzie O'Shea, lawyer and author of the new book, Future Histories, what Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine and the Paris Commune teach us about digital technology. Published by Verso. Also featured on this show, the song Weird Science by Oingo Boingo. You've been listening to Earth Matters. Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Tisha Ahern. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. 
or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, why not rate us and leave us a review? It helps spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or send us a letter, care of 3CR. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intentions? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.